Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palette Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hi, I'm here with Lori Shelton at Camille, um, and it's a very, very special place. It's not only a wine brand, but it's also an art gallery, and Lori is exceptionally creative, and I'm looking at her luminous eyes right now. I feel her presence, and you guys will too in a moment when you hear from her directly. Um, I cannot wait to hear about your background, where you came from. Tell me everything from the very beginning. Well... I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and um, I was raised outside of Ann Arbor in a small town like the size of St. Helena called Dexter, Michigan. And I went to school there, kindergarten through my senior year of high school. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty good chunk of time. I was in the marching band. I played the clarinet. All right. I was a bit of a, (laughs) you know, kind of a nightmare to have in class as a little kid because I was always in some sort of trouble monkeying around. But um, after after graduating from high school, Dexter, where I had a lot of friends and I still have a lot of great friends from from there, I moved to, well, I went to Michigan State University Mm -hmm. and then um, I ended up finishing my degree at University of Central Florida. So I went down to Florida. Mm-hmm. So I've been to Ann Arbor. It's a lovely town. I have been going yeah. up there yeah. uh, on a random press trip. And, of course, the big deal, the medical facility, the university, that's what a lot of the community is built around. So a lot of good old-fashioned values, I felt like. Very Midwestern town. I mean, I was. Uh, my mom always says Lori and her girlfriends were always baking chocolate chip cookies and <laughs> eating cookie dough and getting sugar highs. That was kind of like our winter fun. I'm, I ice skated and sledded. We're big winter. You know, I enjoyed being a, a winter kid. Um, and I still ski. I still ski. I got my first taste of the West Coast skiing. I was had no idea. I grew up skiing on Mount Brighton, which is a garbage dump. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Michigan was a big chunk of my life. My grandparents um, are both from Michigan. Um, my mom's parents were farmers in Chelsea, and my dad's parents were farmers in Grayling, northern Michigan. So my dad kind of called himself the dirt farmer. He actually wrote a book called The Dirt Farmer's Son. And um, I, he thought he married up when he married my mom, who was also a farmer, but from a very pretty red barn, perfect little farm. And um, I spent my summers at both of those farms. From the time I was um, four, I went to my dad's parents, my grandparents up there, because my grandma had lost her only um, daughter. So at four, I spent three and a half weeks up there by myself with my grandma. So that was, uh, and I did that until I was about 16. And then I always spent fair week at my other grandparents, and that's the 4-H fair, the Chelsea fair. So I always wanted a cow. (laughs) And um, so I I have, for me, farming is just kind of where I I really come from. You know, even though I wasn't raised on a farm, my dad's business was uh, away from the farm. And we were in this small community, and, uh, but it was more of a development 
development where I was raised, but I my heart is always on the on the farm, and uh, so I'm kind of I consider myself kind of a small town farm girl. I never had that cow. I never had a sheep because we didn't have our own farm, but I always wanted that. You know, I. Uh, so it's not surprising that I ended up in Napa Valley because it's a small farming community. It's um, not everybody, I think, appreciates or understands um, the benefits of a small town. Um, a lot of people think it's boring and, um, you know, that they need a city or they need more. But for me, I've always liked the community of a small town. Wow. What type of farm was it? The year? So my, my mom's parents uh, were really like Sunnybrook Farm. I mm. mean, my, my grandpa, he farmed oats and wheat and barley and corn. And Very he rotated crops. the crops. Mm -hmm. And he had um, sheep and he had a few milking cows. And he had some, um, you know, uh, steer. And he had, my grandma took care of the chickens. And... They had apple trees, and they had a perfect garden um, with zinnias and straw flowers. And my grandma, you know, had always had flowers from the garden. They had an asparagus patch and lilacs. That's my mom's farm. It was beautiful. The house was white. The barns were red. My grandpa and grandma up north... Their farm was a little more rugged, a little more rustic. They grew sweet corn, so we had a farm stand, and I helped um, sell sweet corn with my grandma. And they also had a garden where they grew potatoes and onions and uh, tomatoes, and we sold those, and uh, actually cucumbers for dill pickles. And uh, we sold that at a little farm stand up there. And uh, it was more, they were more, you know, rural farmers, you mm -hmm. know. Um, but uh, it was good times as a kid. It sounds almost idyllic. What more could you want than all the space and all this visual stimulation and the smells and the sights and the taste of yeah, all those wonderful things? <laughs> yes. Both, both both grandmas loved to bake. So cakes and cookies and plotsky. My my dad's mom was. Um, uh, I guess Sherbin, she said we're not Polish, but I think mm -hmm. they were kind of Polish. And mm -hmm. so, anyway. so ties, yeah. right? Yeah. A lot of that. Yeah. Well, I'm sitting in front of this gorgeous woman who's very svelte, and she's talking about baking and chocolate chip cookies, and it's hard to believe that you grew up around baked goods because <laughs> you look cookies. amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I, I work out, you know, I try and, I try and um, keep in shape. Um, uh huh. But believe me, I, I always used to say I run for chocolate. I used to, oh, I had a hat, I run for Scharfenberger. And people mm. would say, you run for Scharfenberger? And so I, I run so I can eat Scharfenberger. <laughs> That's brilliant. I have to remember that. Oh, I run for bread, apparently. <laughs> Little carboholic tendencies. Um, so this sounds like a wonderful childhood. And what a juxtaposition in the sense, that wonderful aesthetic and elevated farming and like more of the brawn on the other side. So you got to experience both ends of the spectrum, you know, just as a frame of reference very oh, early and on. And my dad's mom, grandpa, my dad's, my grandpa, my dad's dad also made a barrel of wine every year. It was German. And we never saw them drink much wine, but I think my grandpa drank it because he made a barrel every year. He shared it when they did the baling of the hay 
parties and um, so he grew um, some grapes out back and he made this little barrel of very sweet red wine. Not that great. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's interesting. Yeah. That, and again. they also made a barrel of sauerkraut. You know, they were just the kind of farmers who made just enough of what they needed, kind of. You know, it's so interesting that now they've been through this interesting period of time called <laughs> the pandemic. Yeah. A lot of people finally realized or suddenly realized that, you know, kind of going back to growing your own food and really being self-sustained when everything else kind of doesn't make any sense in the world and everything explodes in front of you and everything you believed and clung to apparently mm -hmm. is challenged greatly. Yep. This is where people gravitate. Um, I've heard that like so many people started chicken coops, they run out of chickens. I have chickens. <laughs> yeah. no, I think that I, I used to be really sad about um, the end of the family farm. Yeah. I kind of um, felt like big farming kind of took it away, government subsidies and things like that, because I think that the family farm was, a, it was an iconic thing that sort of, it's not around anymore. But in California, we actually have more and more people who are getting into farming. In, mm -hmm. in the Napa Valley, we're all about grapes. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, if you just go over the hill to Sonoma, there are so many amazing, really kind of more traditional farms that are growing organic fruits and vegetables. So I love that. Yes. No, that's really important. And it's really kind of the pillar of the community in many ways. It looks so lovely and, you know, seemingly like almost hobby-esque. But the truth is that cumulatively, it's a huge strength behind any society. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. We're lucky we live in California where we can grow all this Great, yes, the great weather. food. Yes. Yeah, because mm -hmm. in Michigan, you know, in the old days, although now so much is shipped up, but um, you know, in the winter we would just have potatoes and yeah. onions. Yeah, uh, of course. No beautiful greens like Forney Brown or anything like that. No, I when I was there, there was um, greenhouses like there was this industrial complexes that house all this fruit and vegetables in the greenhouses. So they're producing quite a bit, but I think there's no substitute what we have in California at the end no. of the day, and qualitatively, you can produce the quantity. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so um, there you were. You went to school in another state, so it must have been kind of interesting being detached from everything you knew. When I got down to Florida, that was a whole different uh, deal, you know. Um, I didn't really, I mean, I mean, there were good things about Florida. Um, it was a chunk of time for me, and I ended up graduating from University of Central Florida, studied in English literature and public relations. But during that time, I had a lot of jobs, and I was waiting tables. And I had waiting tables in Michigan, but I kind of slipped into fine dining, and that's how I got my kind of my feet wet learning about wine. And um, then uh, I had I needed another job. And I was introduced to a woman who was a uh, broker, a wine broker. She was 33, maybe, and I was 23. And she needed an assistant. I didn't know how to type. I was a crummy typer. But I learned how to type. And um, I worked with her while I was waiting tables and going to college. And um, she ended up with a baby that wasn't very healthy, but it, he ended up great, and now he's all grown up, 
but he was kind of a sick baby and so she said you know I need you to help me in sales I think you'd be maybe better in sales than you are in um in my office because mm-hmm. I wasn't that great and so I actually started working for her I think I was 23 I might even been 22 um and she had five California wineries under her belt and so I started with the Tampa market and I pretty much Tampa, Orlando, and everything north up to Tallahassee, Pensacola, Jacksonville. I was running around selling California wine. Do you remember which ones? I had, um, at the time, she had what was kind of holding her big uh, program together was Clodeville and Callaway, which Mm -hmm. was part of Wine Alliance. Mm -hmm. And then we had um, St. Soufri and Round Hill. Um, I think Ernie Van Aspring gave her her first start. Her name's McKnight, Deborah McKnight Higgins, and it was McKnight Marketing back in the day. And um, she now lives up back in California. That's another whole story. But, um, and then we also had Tula Kay, which is a little winery down in Napa. And um, we had Landmark. Landmark. Um, that overlooked Chardonnay, yeah. yeah. I, I remember I first tasted it many moons ago and I was so impressed. Yeah, it's great Chardonnay. So yeah. I think, oh, and Gwena. Nice. And Gwena. So yeah. this, these were all these wines that I was selling, um, yeah, when I was quite young. So that's kind of how I dipped into the wine business. And, and, and then you, in order to sell, you know, we would do tastings for the staff and, mm-hmm. um, and talking in front of large groups of salesmen at Southern Wine and Spirits. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know what I was going to become a part of then. I was just just doing it. Wow. So I heard work ethic. You paid for school, it sounds like, right? That's why I you needed the extra job. I had help, but I had to pay for all the other stuff. Of course. So two yeah. jobs and full-time school, it's, it's mm-hmm. quite a bit. Especially since, busy. Yes. Especially my my um, my friends in class would say, "Where did you come from now?" And I'd say, like, <laughs> "Oh, I just drove in from Tallahassee." Where did you come from now? Because I had a night class. And um, anyway, yeah. So yeah. then, uh, my life. I've had uh, you know, my life is layered, and um, so I ended up back in Michigan later, and um, I ended up a single mother with uh, a son mm-hmm. and uh, and then I ended up in the automotive business <laughs> how did that come about? well my dad's business was um, making coatings corrosion preventative coatings for the automotive industry and I knew I could sell and I figured I could sell anything um, just show me the way and I can sell it so then I started working a, a completely different territory I was in South Chicago, I was in Van Wert, Ohio, I was in Frankfurt, um, Indiana, I was in Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, <clears throat> running around selling phosphates, cleaners, and oils for fasteners for the automotive industry. So this beautiful woman walks in and starts talking automotive, you know, how did Oh, that... well, no, I would have to go into these giant job shops, big job oh shops. Goodness. <clears throat> put on my lab coat, my safety glasses, and climb up on the line and, you know, take my graduated cylinder into a big vat and then titrate those chemicals to see how much they needed to order. Wow. So, so it's it was, very hands-on. And it was very, very much not very many women in that industry. I can't imagine. It was, it was crazy, really. But I was so determined to be successful at it because um, my dad didn't think I could do it. 
and so I did, um, I did quite well. So that drive, does it come from proving him wrong, or is there more to it as to why you're so determined? I'm, I, I don't know. I've always had a little bit of chutzpah, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. If uh, somebody tells me they don't think I can do something, I, I'm going to do it. Wow. I wish we could bottle that. <laughs> Sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'd buy it by the case and, yeah. and I would give it away because I think we could all use the, a lot of that. Um, but then, um, so then what? How did I get to the Napa Valley? I'm still not at the Napa Valley. I'm in Michigan. And I uh, had met my husband, actually, uh, my late husband. I had met him in Florida when I was 23 and I met him again in Chicago when that old boss of mine called me up and said I'm so close you have to come visit me and um, so we ran into each other again and then I married him when I was 30. So was he a native of Michigan then? Or? No, um, Tom was working out here in the Napa Valley. He okay. was, uh, he was back in Chicago for a big wine event and oh, um, okay. so we ran into each other again and took many years that but we ended up tying the knot and I got married and moved out here in 97. Very so good year. I've been here for 25 years now. 100 point year, good year to move. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good vintage, <laughs> I should say. Yeah, 97, a lot of good wines in the 90s. My son was born in 91, he has a good vintage. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Isn't that funny how we think in vintages when we live here? Yeah. I can't get away from it. Yeah. Um, so you moved here and he was in the wine business like on the distribution side or? He had been um, uh, working, he was the president at, at Gwenock and then Gwenock. he later went on mm -hmm. to work at Joseph Alps Vineyards. Excellent. Um, so once you guys kind of settled here a little bit and you were looking around it's like kind of looks familiar I mean I think you said it's an agrarian at heart farm yeah yeah, yeah. so it must have made you kind of feel comfortable and Whenever. after you started settling here and discovering and of course it's pretty apparent that it's it's a rural area it's an agricultural area it's farming something that you have a lot of familiarity with. I'm sure it felt good to be in that type of community and Napa, generally speaking, from everything that I know, is very welcoming. Oh, yeah. The town is, the people of St. Helena and Napa are just, uh, it's a real, it really is a small town. Everybody's at half a degree of separation after a while and everybody's really supportive and helpful. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I used to hear that Robert Mondavi would say that what's good for the Napa Valley is good for the Napa Valley. Maybe I'm not saying that right, but that um, everybody lifts each other up. And I really have felt that in, so, in every single aspect, you know. Um, it is so important. I cannot emphasize it enough. Um, because sometimes Napa gets this reputation of being glamorous and hoity-toity and maybe too exclusive. And that's not the Napa I know, and certainly it doesn't sound like that's the Napa that you know, uh, that it's really the opposite, that it's very communal, it's warm, it's welcoming, it's tight lifts all boats mentality. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's changed, it's changed even since, um, 
since I got here because there used to be, um, gosh, only about 50 wineries or maybe 60, but now I think that there's a thousand brands or something. So that's, that's changed, but um, that's just given um, smaller vintners like myself an opportunity to make a brand. When I first got here, there would have been no way I could have made my own wine, really, with a label, because the only way you could sell your wine was through um, distribution, mm -hmm. and there wasn't the direct consumer portion because it wasn't legal. Um, that that change that happened, um, the direct to consumer, well, I'm missing the name of it, um, that big change, uh, changed the whole wine industry. Oh, I'm having a 50-year-old moment. Um, Tom was really involved in working with the Napa Valley Vintners to, mm -hmm. uh, the, oh, the Commerce Clause, to change the oh. Commerce Clause. And once that happened, that really gave opportunities for people with just smaller vineyards to make their own label. And, um, you know, I ended up having Camille because of, because of that. Mm -hmm. So obviously you guys were wine lovers. I can't imagine that you wouldn't have an extensive cellar and all kinds of connections to food and wine. And um, well, we used to be in a great wine tasting group, you know, um, where we tasted. I was in a couple of different wine tasting groups back in the day, and um, where we would bring different wines and open up amazing older vintages and you know taste french and italian wines as well as our own wines and <clears throat> it was really fun i'm not in a tasting group now but mm -hmm. so we have um merlot and it's from a three palms clone mm -hmm. um, which is just up the road from us <clears throat> and then uh in 2006 we planted cabernet on uh, the 337 clone and I think I was saying that we had sold the fruit for many years, and mm -hmm. there was never, um, we were never going to make the the wine. I always kind of had interest in making it, but Tom didn't, because he was part of this other <clears throat> big winery, and he... Just, Classic, iconic. Yeah, and so he <laughs> didn't feel like that was something that we would do. We had made a label once, kind of for fun, um... And then, um, gosh, I just cannot remember everything, but um, hmm. we, I did do a little custom crush one year, and we made a, a few cases of Shelton wine. Um, yeah. Oh, their name, they're down in Napa. I just, it's gonna come to me in a second. Do you still have some? Some bottles? Oh, it's probably not very good, mm. no. But, um, so that was kind of the beginning, and then, um, when Tom passed away in 2008, um, I was, you know, my daughter was very young and it was a really horrible time for us, but um, a friend suggested, why don't you make your own wine? And in, a, in memory, and it still, of course, chokes me up. This is always tricky. I did this once before because my story is tough. I don't know if you Google me. I do have a tough story. <laughs> but I can be good. Uh, well, I'm not usually this emotional because no, no, when I have okay. to go through the whole, my whole life. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I would love to hear whatever you want to share. <clears throat> so, um, okay, put me back on. Perfect. Got it. 
Okay, so me telling my life is tricky, but um, so my friend suggested we make our wine and I decided to name it Kemi after I tried about 20 different kinds of names that were maybe more related to Tom. <clears throat> they were all Taken, excuse mm -hmm. me. There's even a brand called Taken. It's <laughs> tricky when you're trying to find your name. And my friends um, suggested, he, he had Googled uh, the cola for Kemi and uh, he said it's not Taken. I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. We're a blend of eight kids now. And she's still the youngest. And I thought, like, oh gosh, nobody's going to like that we named this after her. But, oh well, we can get the name. So, um, it's actually the pronunciation of her name. Her name is Camille. And it's Camille, C-A-M, with a little I for the pronunciation. So, that was 2013 that we decided to make <coughs> the wine. And, um kind of interesting it was a great year and uh, the farmer <coughs> excuse me the farmer um, told me that he didn't exactly know what to do with the grapes that year that was buying them that was kind of also how we got there and then I said like okay well maybe I'm supposed to make this wine and um, one winemaker took the Merlot and one winemaker took the Cab and then I brought back 85 cases. So our, our first vintage was only 85 cases. Wow, it's like very, four barrels. Yes, very little. But then you're, you can't drink 85 cases. Uh, Unless cases. you have a lot of friends. No, so all <laughs> like of a sudden of you have to start selling it. So yeah. then we had a label and I, um, my son is a photographer and he's super talented, Trevor, uh, Trevor Mansfield. And, um, I said, Trevor, why don't you make us a label? And so he came back with this just amazing um, set of photos where he was out uh, in the vineyards and he had also had an internship in Asia. And so it has a very minimalist feel to it and um, is from his tendril series. And then he put a, a poetry on the back. So each one of our red wine blends has a poem in dedication to Tom. He was a, an amazing, where I can't spit my words out, Tom could lay a poem just in the air, right, right spontaneously. It was amazing at that. So each one of our labels has each year a different piece of poetry. So it's, it's kind of fun. And Trevor manages our labels. So it's definitely the youngest ones at home. Um, we're involved in starting that. My, my stepdaughter Jessica has two little boys and uh, she was already kind of off at that point and then uh, Brian has a little boy. He was also off on his own. They're older and Jonathan so the younger ones were involved in that, that beginning project. Um, the conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure featuring Alona Thompson.